Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Rosemary to the show. Hi, Rosemary. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Rosemary is a member of Allen and Family Groups, and she'll be sharing her journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and talk about how Allen has helped her cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So, Rosemary, we usually start off talking about growing up and family and things, but I guess first off, do you want to just talk about your relationship to the alcoholic? It was my second husband. I was married the first time, and my first husband didn't drink, so I guess I thought he was boring. But in actual fact, he was quite steady. But my second husband was the drinker and started off very social. We lived together for 18 months. I had three children. He had two. And then eventually we had one together. But I think I guess it started on the day of our wedding. He was just really drunk that night. And all my expectations just fell away. You know, I expected all this to be wonderful. And, yeah, so I guess it started from there. Righto. Well, we'll take you back to childhood then. So did you grow up in an alcoholic home or was did you have a fairly normal childhood? No, there wasn't any alcohol as such. You know, there were the usual, there were six children. I was the eldest of six children. So it was fairly um, a bit chaotic in some parts, but on the whole, it was fairly happy. But my grandfather lived down the street and I met a cousin years later and she told me, oh, yeah, Grandpa was an abusive alcoholic. And that kind of clicked with me because I used to go down there and wondered why my grandmother used to cry and was really sad. And and I remember seeing the whiskey there and I remember them not talking together for three or four weeks. So I guess they were early signs which had an effect on the whole family, yeah. Yeah. So who was it, your maternal or paternal grandfather? My maternal. Okay. So did it have an effect on your mum? I think it did. I think it must have, although it was never, ever talked about. But, yeah, growing up there were a lot of arguments and I can remember mum and dad fighting, although they didn't drink. Mum used to like to have a drink occasionally, but, you know, as it got sort of a bit chaotic as it got older, you know, as the kids started growing up. But, yeah, I think it must have, but looking back now, it must have affected her. So did you enjoy your childhood? Yes, I suppose I did. I always thought being the eldest, I I was a bit of a loner. I think that's why I got married at 19 was sort of to get away from the family, you know, as each child used to come along. But I didn't like hearing the arguments so much. Yeah. And I was never going to do that. Of course I did. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So did you find school a bit of a respite from home? 
No, actually, we moved around a lot until I was 10 because Dad was in the bank. We lived a lot in the country. And I never got on with school. I, I hated school. I hated high school. I left school at 14, 15 in third year. And I had friends out of school. So around the corner, you know, and I've still got lifelong friends that I've known for 60 years. So, but yeah, no, I didn't find school as a respite. No, maybe in some ways, maybe, but. Yeah. What, what about friendships? Oh yeah, I've got a lot of lifelong friendships now. Not so much in school because I changed schools all the time. Uh, that was a bit hard. So was it a bit of a burden for you with all your siblings? I think my escape was going out socially with girlfriends and boyfriends, not promiscuously or anything like that, but just going out. You know, I met my first husband when I was 15, but I think that was my escape. You know, we had a lot of church things. There were dances in those days. So that was probably my escape. And then, as I said, everyone was getting married. You didn't go and live with anybody. So we just got married because everyone else was getting married. So how old were you then? 19. So you mentioned at the start uh, you married for a second time. So it wasn't satisfactory marriage? The first one? Yeah. No, as I said, I just think, I was more attracted when the alcoholic came along, you know, he was very charismatic and, but I guess I thought my husband was not boring, but just couldn't find anything there. Yeah. But, you know, we had three children and, you know, it wasn't too bad. It was pretty good in some ways, but I just never felt satisfied inside, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure really. Thought it was better when I left. (laughs) So was it difficult having three children and being a lone parent? Yes, it was for a while. And I met my husband, my second husband not long after, a year or so later. And as I said, he moved me in pretty quickly, actually, because his wife had left him and he had the two children coming back for holidays. So he kind of moved me back in. I think there was a lot of control back then, but I, I, I didn't know, so... Um, He moved me in fairly quickly and started paying me monthly as a way of surviving, I suppose. And I had to do the, do everything, you know, for the family. So I I felt when looking back now, I felt like I was a paid person there, but you know, he was great. Like took us out to things. He was really good with the kids in the beginning, but it just slowly progressed. So you'd had no exposure to real alcoholism before? No, no. He used, we used to go out and we'd drink and we used to go to people's places and we had dinner parties and he used to drink. I didn't drink. I mean, I could stop drinking, but we had these big dinner parties and we'd drive home in the car because I had to drive because he was drinking and I just accepted it and the arguments started. You know, the arguments would be in the car and didn't matter what I said, just didn't make any sense and one time I can remember one time I thought well I'm not going to answer him because it didn't make you know and then he said answer me woman answer me woman you know why aren't you talking to me and so it didn't matter what I said it was just all mixed up yeah it was totally mixed up yeah my dad's an alcoholic too and I remember one time coming home from a cousin's wedding and my mother was driving my father was putting on a real turn and he must have said something because she just said, get out of the car. <laughs> what about 
I don't know, five or six kilometres from home. And he got out of the car and he was home the next morning. So he'd, he'd made it home. But, um, yeah, she'd had absolutely enough. So, <laughs> oh, dear. I know that, yeah, yeah, it just didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. So as the kids grew up, you know, did you get a bit more freedom? I suppose I did, although he controlled everything in the house. He controlled the finances. He controlled what the children had to do, even my children, which schools they had to go to. Yeah, there was a lot of control there. And if I tried to say anything, I just didn't, you know, the arguments would start. Yeah. And the drinking didn't start off as bad as it did as it got on. I think as the children grew up, particularly more the boys than the girls, there were two girls and four boys, I think it became like father and son, you know, he he would sort of knock heads with them and, um, yeah, argue with them. And, and particularly with my second son, he was he took it out on him a lot. There was quite a lot of abuse and I can remember if I butted in, then I would cop it. So I feel really guilty about that, yeah. There was some physical abuse as well with myself and two of my sons, only on one each of occasions, but... I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything because I felt trapped. I just totally felt trapped. I didn't go, you know. Yeah, sort of looking back now, it's it's something that would be um, quite common in those days. But today it's sort of now seen as totally unacceptable, but then it was just normal. So do you sort of look back and think how different it could have been if there had been some intervention? Yes, Sonny, I, would, I was too scared to go to anywhere. I mean, I did actually remember we did actually go to counselling because I was trying anything. His two children were adopted and for some reason the counsellor brought up the adoption and particularly the eldest boy, he, he took it at a real fence and wouldn't go back again. So it was kind of squashed on the head. You know, they didn't bring up alcoholism or about the family, but I was trying everything, yeah. I was just trying things, different things. But it wasn't the intervention like they have these days and it certainly wasn't talked about. I think a lot of my family knew what it was like. Oh, he's just a drunk, you know. Leave him, you know, as the years went on, just leave him, you know. But it wasn't that simple just to leave. It it was really difficult. I felt very trapped. Yeah. So were you able to work or were you just staying home? I did when our younger son was nearly five, when he was five, I think nearly five when he was in preschool and then went to school. I went back to work as a legal secretary. First of all, I worked in Woolworths as a checkout chick. He didn't mind that, but then he was starting to control my finances. Any money that I got, he was starting to control that as well, particularly towards the end before I left him. He wanted me to give him so much my pay. And I know that was when I was in Al-Anon and I went and saw a counsellor lady and she said, you have to say no. So I came home, I made sure somebody else was there and I said, no, well, all hell broke loose. (laughs) He wanted all the cards back and everything like that. Yeah, it was just totally, I did it, but yeah, it was just, I was very frightened. Yeah. So going back to work, was that a good outlet for you? Yes, it was actually. I met lots of people and friends, although I didn't do very well at work because of what was going on at home. So I couldn't concentrate, I guess, looking over at all my job lives, like 
from then on, yeah. I thought I did well for a while, but then things would happen at home and, you know, I was even cleaning when I first met him, but, um, yeah, things were still going on then, I think, I remember. So, yeah, he didn't want me to work when I first met him because of money, yeah, because of money, so. Right. It's common to fight over finances, but was that one of your flashpoints? I think me trying to get him to stop drinking or not drinking as much. Um, although I didn't mention it as much. Yeah, I think because he used to drag me into his study. He was an accountant and he used to ask me to come into his study. He was doing all the books and why was I going here? And I, I used to go to a lot, a lot of doctors because I was so stressed and trying to find out what was wrong with me and why am I spending money on here and why am I spending here? And, you know, and I can remember just going out to shops and just, like, because I had a David Jones card, I used to just go there and just have a look around for any specials just just as an outlet <laughs> as well because I was feeling really, I didn't know what was happening, yeah. Yeah. So was anybody else concerned about you? Oh, I suppose family, but concern, not not concerned about like now. Um, I don't think a lot of people really knew what was actually happening. You know, they just saw the fun side of him, which he was. Lots of times he was fun. He was great. He used to take us to the football and, you know, he used to take the kids to things. And when he was good, he was really good. When he was bad, yeah, it was really hard. And I don't think a lot of my friends, they didn't actually see the arguments and the, yeah, at home. So I don't know. I think I used to talk to girlfriends. As a woman, I used to talk to girlfriends, but probably running him down more than they were, you know, the whole focus was on him. Yeah, it usually is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's where all my focus was, was totally on him. <laughs> yeah, I've often heard alcoholics talk about not taking a wife but taking a prisoner. So did you feel that in your relationship? Absolutely, yep. I felt trapped because he had the money and because he was, you know, we were comfortable. I just couldn't imagine doing it with all the children, you know, again um, on my own. I was all right before. I had it all worked out and um, I was doing well. But, yeah, he, he just, I think because he just took over, I just felt totally trapped. Yeah. I can remember ringing up my mother crying. We'd been out when I had to pick him up from a club. He'd been drinking in his lunch hour at work. I mean, that was another thing. He was put off from work because of his drinking. He um, swore to the kids in the car. He was totally unreasonable. And all he wanted me to do is pick him up from one place and drop him off to a club at another place. So I just said to him to get home on his own. He had to catch a taxi home. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's very interesting uh, living with an alcoholic, isn't it? You're bringing it all back. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, listen, we might take a short break there. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. 
We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Rosemary and we're talking about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon Family Groups. So, Rosemary, before we finished, we were talking about your husband's progressive drinking and, you know, some of the problems he was having with drinking and work. So were you looking for help to cope with, you know, living with an alcoholic? I can remember going to a psychiatrist. I think one of my doctors suggested a psychiatrist. And, of course, I couldn't tell him. He, I don't know how he found out, but he did find out. And then he was going to sue him or he was going to put him in or something but he said to me I think you're depressed and I didn't even know what depression was we didn't talk about alcoholism of course and I said oh really and he said if I said something horrible to you would you you would burst out crying would you or something like that to that effect and I think I would have so that was the first sign that I realized that I was depressed he put me on antidepressants which I was really scared to tell him that I was on antidepressants I think it was one in those days that you couldn't drink. And, um, I mean, I used to have a social drink, so, you know, how could I hide that from him that I wasn't drinking? Why was I, you know, the arguments would have started, yeah. So did that improve things for you? No, the things just kept going on. Not not really. So it was depression, but it was situational depression. <laughs> it was just a Band-Aid at that time, I think. It was just a Band-Aid. Yeah, because I didn't know what was really wrong. So did any of your friends have similar problems? No, not that I knew of. No, no, they didn't. No, I didn't have anyone I could talk to about the drinking. I mean, certainly we had his friends that we used to go to dinner parties and their husbands drank, but I never talked to the wives about any problems. I mean, they were quite happy from what I could gather. They were quite happy, yeah. Yeah, and people who don't live with alcoholism don't really understand what alcoholic behaviour is. Mm. They just see the drinking. They don't see the behaviour necessarily, yeah. That's right, yeah. So did anything change or did this just go on for years? This went on for quite a long time. So I was with him for 13 years and the kids were growing up. They were in high school. They left home. They were having their problems. A few of them got into marijuana, the eldest one. A couple of mine got into marijuana. I knew that it was going on, but I was so scared to do anything with my husband. To You know, I couldn't tell him. I mean, I think he knew, but I can remember pulling out marijuana plants behind the swimming pool and I was hiding all their problems and I was completely involved in their problems as well. I was enabling them. I was getting them out of fines. We had the police there. Oh, there was one time we had the police there with my husband too. And Could the kids see what was happening to you? 
I think that's what their escape was. I think that's why they were leaving, you know, looking back now. I, no, I don't think they could. They, they saw me as the problem because, you know, I was nagging and I was screaming and yelling and arguing. They could see the arguments with my husband. They thought it was me. Why was I arguing with him, you know, because he was the happy one when he was drinking and then he would turn nasty. Yeah, so I don't think they did. Maybe now when they look back, they did. Yeah, it's it's often very difficult to pick the alcoholic in an alcoholic family because everybody acts un- erratically, if you like. Every Everything's a reaction to something. So with the kids leaving home, did that increase the pressure on you? It usually does. It did, yes, because then I was worried about them and they got themselves into trouble. They got kicked out of places and I was still running around with their problems. The girls were okay. The girls were fine. My daughter was still living at home. She left home when she finished year 12. Her her thing was to go overseas. So she'd saved up money and went overseas. She's now living overseas now. But yeah, her. I think her thing was to get away from the family. And, and once the kids have left home, did your life change? Not really, because he still had me to focus on. I think things got slightly worse. I can remember I, it, in that last year, I, I had to go over. I went over to Western Australia to some friends and um, my daughter stayed home and minded our son then and he went off to work but she said during that time there was a huge argument and she was crying and she was really upset I said oh I have to leave him I have to leave him I can't do it and she said oh can you wait till I finish year 12 which she was just about to go into so I did and that was when I found Alan on after that so that was sort of me reaching out to other people I did speak to a few people about it a few of his friends or a few of my friends, but they they didn't sort of understand, yeah. But it didn't get any better, no. No, okay. So what was the, I guess, the trigger for reaching out for help for you? Well, two years before I actually got into Al-Anon, I rang AA and asked them to tell me how to stop him drinking because we didn't have internet in those days. So... They just suggested Al-Anon. They didn't tell me much about it, but I, I didn't know anything about Al-Anon, so I dragged him along to a counsellor for two years, uh, for a little while, but, of course, he was very uncomfortable about it. And then, as I said, this last year, I'd had enough. It was just going on and on and on, and I can remember coming home. I'd been out, and he was, he'd been drinking, and he was going to sue our dentist for putting braces on our son's teeth without his permission. He signed the form. He gave his consent. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I said, but you signed the form. And he said, I don't care. I'm gonna, I said, what are you going to sue him for? And he said, child molestation for touching our son without my permission. <laughs> and I'm lying there and I'm thinking, this is just crazy. I'm going to have to ring AA tomorrow. So I rang AA in the morning. Ask them, how can I get him to stop drinking? And they gave me a phone number of a lady in Al-Anon. So I quickly rang her and she was lovely and um, didn't tell me too much but said to come along to a meeting and gave me some meeting times. And I thought I'll have to go to one in during the city during the day. 
so that he didn't know. And I finally found it. Uh, I was a bit late because I went to the wrong end of the city. I went into Sydney City. I remember sitting in and they didn't know that I was a newcomer. They asked me to share and I couldn't even speak. There was no way I could speak. I can't even remember what anyone said, but I just felt safe. And then after the meeting, somebody gave me the newcomer's pack and she was lovely. She was really nice, very welcoming and took me to the church next door. Not that I was religious that way, but we lit a candle and I guess that was like a spiritual, I don't know what it was. And she told me about another meeting that we could go to that was local. So I met her the next week. But I remember reading these pamphlets on the way home in the train and they are just stories of people and it all made sense. I couldn't believe it. When I was reading it, going home in the train, I just couldn't believe after years of talking to people, friends, that this actually made sense. So something made me come back again. Yeah. So did sort of the disease concept, did that make sense to you? Not that it wasn't even talked about in the first, like, you know, it took me weeks to even realise that. And because they, they say to come back for six meetings, so I'm glad I did. <laughs> Something must have stuck with me to come back because I just felt really um, here was people, you know, they talk after the meeting and I think I got a lot of value out of that. I can't even remember hearing anything for the first few meetings. I couldn't talk for three or four meetings. Yeah. Yeah. But they very gentle they just you know it was and it was all anonymous it was just on first name basis so I was really grateful for that because he was quite well known in Sydney yeah yeah okay so what was it about the meetings that you felt you related to most hearing the stories hearing other people going through what I went through and that it made sense I guess I can remember hearing a lady saying whose husband was in AA and had been for many years together. They were both in a program. And I can remember her saying that she had hope. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, you're my hope. She became my sponsor for a while. So that was really lovely. And I'm still friends with her today. And there was hope. I think it was just hope that it might change. Yeah. Hope, hope's about sort of looking forward and thinking that things will change, whereas you know, the hopelessness is that there's no way that it's going to change. It's just going to be like this forever. And and it all depends upon you, um, you know, doing something. Whereas hope, I think, is something outside of you that something can help you. Yes. You obviously didn't mention this to your husband. Is that right? I did tell him because I it was on a Friday night. So I had to tell him, look, I was going out. <laughs> His reaction, I think, yeah, it was a bit weird at first, actually. I used to read my little books and I can remember I ended up working with him in his office and we were driving home in the car with his son. Oh, she, and he'd been drinking and he said, oh, she reads these books. I don't know what she does, but she reads these little books and she thinks she's so smart, you know, because she reads these books. But he said, I don't want any of those people ringing here in this house. <laughs> You know, he was very like that. And I remember he came up to me once, it was in the morning, and he, he looked at me and he said, you think I'm an alcoholic, don't you? I, I wasn't game enough to say, well, it's not up to me to what 
what I think, it's up to you, you know. Like I, I don't think that, but, you know, I had a problem with his drinking and I thought he may have had a problem drinking. Yeah, but yeah. I had to tell him. Yeah. So was there any ramifications from that for you? He actually, I think once I started going to Al-Anon and I started looking at myself and not focusing on him, things, looking back now in that nine or 12 months, things actually changed. I think I wouldn't have accepted the unacceptable behaviour. I don't know how, but I wouldn't have. But he wasn't as abusive. I mean, there were a few arguments still. But I didn't, you know, because they were saying to me, zip your mouth. You know, don't react because I was the biggest reactor. And I think things did change. Um, yeah. And I was just growing at a rapid rate. I was just changing, you know, from um, doing the Al-Anon program and um, having phone calls. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he knew what was actually going on. He could see me changing, but he didn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's the big impact is that the fact that, He's now dealing with a different person who won't react, who can't be provoked as easily, and he has to change his behaviour because you've changed yours. Yeah. Yes, it didn't quite happen. Yes, I can see what you mean. I think, yes, maybe he did. I, I don't know, yeah. yeah. certainly remember um, a few months after we had a birthday party for him and, his, and I've got photos of it, and both of them are sitting there with their glass of wine and they're just sort of looking really sad. They're not participating in anything. Like they, they weren't, you know, I was happy. I was doing all the entertaining. And whereas normally I wouldn't have been allowed to do that. It was always him. Mm. Yeah. I think were changed. Yeah. Yes. So did your family, did your kids notice that, that things were changing? Maybe. They never said anything. Maybe they did. Yeah. I don't know. They certainly didn't. I was still working the program. I was just focusing on me at the moment. All I could do was day day to time, you know. I couldn't, um, I mean, the boys had left home. Yeah, so I don't know. I can't remember. Yep. So did things improve at work for you with you being able to not, uh, to forget about the alcoholic during the day? I know I left one job and started another one and, Probably not, no, because I was still, my head was still thinking everything, yeah. Although the focus wasn't on him, I was still trying to get through life with the kids and myself, you know. Was, yeah, there was still a lot going on. And there were still things with him that he was arguing about, you know, he would try. And, of course, my head was just that way that I would still go to work. But it was just a slow progress, but it certainly was a little bit easier, yes. Okay. Right, we might take a break. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. Oh, living free. 
This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Rosemary about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So Rosemary, you talked about coming to Al-Anon and things getting a bit better and your relationship improving a bit. But was that enough with the help of Al-Anon to continue living the alcoholic situation? No, it wasn't actually. My daughter had left home, gone overseas, finished a year 12, and I guess it was just myself, my husband and my young son. But I think I was worn down so many years. I think I'd just had enough, you know, any trust had gone. I don't know. I left left him at Christmas with my young son, and that was really difficult when I did leave. I was going through because I was working in a solicitor's office, so we were going through the divorce, and he was very difficult. It was actually worse when we left. It was just really hard to even talk to him about him, about our son and as the years went on. So I think things, you know, were just getting worse, certainly because I'd left. But um, anyway, I, was, I, I felt a lot freer. That was just how I felt at the time. And with the help of Al-Anon, I got through a lot, yeah. The divorce process often brings out, you know, really difficult relationships with the alcoholic. So his, did his behaviour get more difficult for you during that period? Yes, definitely for two years. After a year I moved interstate with our son and he was just totally unreasonable. It, it went on for two years. The letters that were going backwards and forwards, um, he would, when I was living in Sydney with my son, he would forget to pick him up or he would be late or early and didn't let me know and never stuck to anything. Yes, definitely got. Yeah. So how did your life change once you separated? I suppose I was in charge of my life. I was in charge of what I had to say. I might have made some mistakes over the years, but I certainly felt that, yeah, that I sort of was taking back a bit of control over my life, I guess, yeah, my decisions. It was difficult. It was very difficult because he did everything, so it was very difficult. It was like I've heard people say when their partner dies and they do everything. So, yeah, I had to manage, you know, all my finances, all my bills, you know, everything like that. So it was really difficult for a long time, yeah. And I got very sick. A couple of years later, I had breast cancer. So I think that was from all the stress, you know, the wearing down. So I went through all that as well over the years, yeah. Yeah. So did you have any support from your family during that period? Yes, I went down to Tasmania where my family were, my mother and father and my brother and his wife, and I had support from them. So that was really good. It was lovely. And my other family, yes, I did. Yeah. So once you're separated and you're no longer living with the alcoholic, your life is not necessarily better, as you say. Now, how did Alanon help you in that period? I had the tools of Alanon. It was just wonderful. I had my readings. I had my meetings I could go to, which I went to all the time. When I moved into state, I went to meetings. Um, I just know that. I had the support from them. I had loving support from Al-Anon that there were people, these were people that understood what I was going through, even in separations, you know, the grief, yes, separations. 
family with your children, you know, um, certainly with our son and over the years. And it just helped me become a better person, helped me become a more loving person, open person. Yeah. So did it change your relationship with your children? Over the years, yes, definitely. It was a bit tough there for a few years. A few of them were going through their own thing, but I think I took my hands off their problems and a couple of them weren't talking to me for a couple of years, but I just kept in contact with them, let them know that I was always there for them. With the help of Alan on, they told me, you know, just what sort of not told me what to do but supported me. But now it's such a wonderful relationship I have with all my children, four children. Yeah, it's fantastic now. I've got such a wonderful relationship with them all. Yeah. Did they ever get into Alan on themselves? No. The youngest one went to Alateen for a while in Sydney, but then we closed it down because we didn't get the support. This was before it is today, but he went to, to Alateen for a while. But no, the others haven't. But they know that I go and, you know, they often, we, I sort of talk to them a little bit about it, but, yeah. So being an Al-Anon, has that helped you? You said it's, it's made you a better person, but what sort of things can you sort of, I guess, relate to most about how it's helped you? I can tell my children I love them now. I couldn't do that before. <laughs> Yes, it's made me a more loving person. It's made me a more accepting person. It's uh, made me step back from my children's problems, you know, if they have any. They don't seem to these days. Mind my own business. Yeah, I guess I feel like I've grown up. Um, we, we just have conversations. We have wonderful times together. Yeah, I've got my son living near me and he's been wonderful in the last year since I've moved down here. Yeah, and we couldn't have done that years ago. We didn't particularly get on well for a long time. But today it's just lovely. It's just wonderful. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah, it's very classic for alcoholic families not to get on because there's so much uh, you, can't, you can't be honest with each other because people use it against you. It's, uh, <laughs> you can't tell people how you feel. No, that's right. Yeah. So what sort of things have you got involved in in Al-Anon that have helped you? I do a lot of service. I've been doing service for years. Not so much in Sydney, but when I went to Tasmania, I've done um, GR. We set up a group um, with the help of the other members and then I became a DR. We had a national convention in Hobart. We have those every Easter. And I was on the committee organising that. I've done... um, done a lot of public information work. I've done a lot of service work. Wherever I go, I went to the Central Coast and I was doing a lot of service work the whole time I was up there. And I think that's really good for me. I grew as a person more, like I was secretary quite a few times. I put my skills into it. And that's something that I could do. I'm, I'm not a treasurer, but I could be a secretary. <laughs> yeah, treasurer is a bit of, bit of hard work, yeah. <laughs> It gave me confidence. Al-Anon has given me confidence to do these skills, which is great. And just accepting there's no right or wrong way, you know, it's great. So has that helped you in your life generally, just being more confident? Yes, definitely. When I was on the Central Coast, I was um, president of uh, Spinning and Weaving and Textile Guild, 
and I was president for about four years. I couldn't have done that without Alan on. I mean, I used to have to chair the meetings. Before I was chairing the meetings, they all used to talk over each other and argue. <laughs> but um, when I was doing it, not to blow my own trumpet, but I think just the gentle way of Al-Anon, you know, I just said, I'll let somebody else speak, you know, we'll just hear somebody else. So, yeah, I, you know, being president was kind of easy. Yeah, it was good. It gave me the confidence to do that. Yeah. Yep. And are your kids old enough to have grandkids yet? Oh, yes, I've got grandchildren, yes. And what's that like, you know, being able to sort of, I guess, have, I've just become a grand, grandparent myself and it's just, I guess, the opportunity to, you know, see another life come through and, you know, to, to be involved but not, not necessarily responsible. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, I've got a 21-year-old down here and it's, I'm having a lovely time with family. My daughter, who still lives overseas, has got three three young ones, but we talk on FaceTime every week, you know, two or three times a week. And and it's I can talk to them so well now. And I think my daughter appreciates that too, you know. It's just lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the ability to talk openly to people, because in an alcoholic situation you've got so many things that you can't talk about mm. because of somebody else usually. You can't talk about it because of the alcoholic or you can't talk about it because it'll upset someone else or it's just fraught. So, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember all those times. Yeah, we, we just have conversations. We just enjoy life. And I, I'm, I'm enjoying their, their interests and where they're up to. One's in high school overseas, one's in primary, and the little one, he's only three. And he just loves his granny, you know. It's just wonderful to see somebody just, oh, granny, I want to speak to granny, <laughs> you know. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I just get such a kick out of it these days. It is nice, yeah. So have you, have you got any plans for the future or not? I'm just, uh, I moved down here and I'm just, um, no, no, not any great plans. Um, <laughs> um, I'm 70 now, so I'm not working anymore, but um I have interests. I do a lot of sewing and, you know, I'm quite busy and I've met a lot of friends since I've been down here. So, yeah, just mulling them along. Yeah, just enjoying life as it is, enjoying life. So you've moved down here permanently, is that? Yes, I have now yeah. to be closer. Yeah. yeah. He's sort of supporting me. I didn't have any family up there as such. You know, they were all scattered a bit. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got another son in Melbourne as well. So there's two sons here, which I see. That's good. So the other thing we often talk to people about is, you know, the sorts of things that you would say to somebody who'd been through your experience or was, was experiencing what you did at, at the time. So what would you say to, to people who have an alcoholic in their family today? Gosh, just how much it's helped me. It's just, it's, it's just... Uh, finding the courage to go along, but if you can go along to an Al-Anon meeting, they're they're all online at the moment. You know, you get the welcome, the warmth. Yeah, just to go along to an Al-Anon meeting and get the help because it, it's, you know, I love going to meetings now and seeing new people come in. You know, that's why I still go because my family say, why are you still going? But, you know, if we all left, we wouldn't be there for the the newcomers and just to see how desperate they are. 
and just to see the change is it's just wonderful if anybody's living in that disease of alcoholism there is help out there yeah the other one i was going to say is during covid all of the 12-step meetings pretty much went online so did you notice much of a difference when meetings went online I was grateful when I moved down to Melbourne last year and then we went into lockdown of having Al-Anon online uh, because um, that was still my connection. I, I noticed a little bit of difference. It was wonderful getting back to face-to-face meetings. But we we would have new people come in, I think, because during lockdown it was so prevalent. Alcoholism sort of came to the forefront and we would have new people coming in and um, we would support them still the same way. Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised at how willingly people went to online meetings. Yeah, as newcomers, it it seemed unusual to me, but people felt, I think, a little bit easier going to an online meeting than a face to face meeting. Yes, I could imagine that's probably why. Yeah, and a lot of people are still going to online meetings if they can get to them. I mean, there's world ones now. You can get onto. You know, I went to one in Alaska and one in um, Canada, I think it was. Yeah, it's great. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Fabulous. Because I, I think there was an Al-Anon survey in 2019, which was about six months before lockdown, I think it was. And in that survey, I think less than 1% of people had been to or were considering going to an online meeting. And during COVID, I think you know, in Australia, well, particularly in Victoria, that went up to almost 100%, which which is a dramatic change in real terms and how quickly people accepted that and did it and realised that, gosh, they could go to meetings any time of the day, anywhere in the world, and what a great resource that is. It was really wonderful and, and in the comfort of your own home and just to have that connection with people, it was fantastic. And also to have people from overseas join your meeting. And, yeah, yeah, it's good. Right. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up? I don't know. I know that it's a scary thing if anyone's thinking about going to Al-Anon, but, you know, we we do make you feel very welcome and we give you um, pamphlets when you first come in that you can take away with you and um, just suggest that you come for six meetings. Yep, I don't know. It's, it's, it is it's a scary thing, but, um, gosh, the the what I've got out of Al-Anon has just been such a joy. You know, life is just worth living now. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's a good message to end on. If anybody would like to find out more about Al-Anon Family Groups, you can phone them on 1300 252 or you can go online at alanon.org.au for more information about meetings and phone contacts uh, throughout Australia. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Rosemary for joining me and sharing her Alan Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you very much, Bill. It's been a wonderful experience, actually, reliving it all. <laughs> Be great. <laughs> That's good. I hope you've got it. Listen again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. 
The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.